Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who just renewed his subscription to Corn Cob TV. Here is the captain. Chucka chucka choo choo. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today is another great day in the garage. We are still sipping on this fine beer from the good folks at Low Res Brewing in Chicago. It's called Bob's Your Uncle, which is a fine British pub ale. There are notes of bread and biscuits with some toffee to smooth things out a little. This is a fantastic brown beer on tap at Low Res right now. ABV 5.5%, garage grade 4 out of 5 bottle caps. And cheers to these fine folks for supporting the garage a shout out to olivia peterson in west fargo north dakota and a big we like to jib to christy in vancouver washington next up a cheers to katie keon in aurora ontario and last but certainly not least we have amy and guam everyone we mentioned helped us out with this week's beer fund and for that we thank you yeah b-w-e-double-r-u-n beer run Thank you so much for supporting the show. You want to support the show? Go to iTunes and leave a five-star review. We would love you forever. And Colonel, that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. The Browns' chicken massacre, unfortunately, was not the first time Illinois had experienced such a tragedy. 
You have the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which occurred on Valentine's Day 1929 in Chicago, with seven victims left dead. The Browns chicken case taking place in 1993, but sadly, it would not be the last of its kind experienced in the greater Chicago area. We touched a little bit yesterday, Captain, on the importance of holdback information and what could be considered holdback information in this case. The holdback information in the Browns Chicken Massacre, to me, was kind of different than what we have come accustomed to. What's so great here is that we have no witnesses. Now, I say that's great. That's obviously a big problem for the investigation. You want witnesses. Witnesses will help you solve this thing faster, putting eyes on anything and then relaying those details and that information to the investigators can only help solve this case faster. However, what we have here is we don't have anybody that was in the restaurant that day or night that is saying, look, this seems suspicious. This seemed odd. This guy looked bad. I think this guy was walking into the place with a gun or as I was leaving and I left the parking lot after closing, I saw these vehicles there or these people that were still in the store. That's we don't have that here. And on top of that, we don't have security footage like you mentioned yesterday. Exactly right. And like we've seen in so many other cases where unfortunately these murders or homicides take place at a store or a restaurant, we oftentimes have a customer or patrons of that restaurant that are saying, when I left, everything was fine. And this was the person that was still in the store, or this was a person that I saw right before I left in the yogurt shop case. We talk about several people saying that there were still two guys in the store when the girls closed the yogurt shop that night. Now, while I say that having witnesses will help solve your case faster, obviously, I say here also that not having any witnesses is and can be a good thing. It's a good thing for your holdback information because now you have more pieces that you can hold back from the public that should help you quickly decipher who should be ruled in as a possible possible suspect and who should be ruled out. And when you're talking about a case of this magnitude, where we have thousands of tips pouring in, we have a lot of people working in the case you need. It is advantageous to your investigation. If you have the ability to quickly move on from a potential suspect or quickly hone in on a potential suspect. And that's what your holdback information is going to help you with. So with no witnesses, the first item of holdback information, and some of this is weird to me, Captain, because some of this may have simply have been happenstance. Some of it may have been actual holdback information, and we'll go through these one at a time. First thing that we have is the actual exact location of the bodies. So in the early reports, in the early media reports, they had all seven bodies in one location of the restaurant and basically one corner of the kitchen, the northwest corner, all in or around that cooler. Of course, we know that was not true. We know that we have five victims in the freezer, which is actually in an entirely different corner of the restaurant. 
again, I don't know if that was a situation of the papers got it wrong and police chose not to correct them, or if they chose to hold back that information and just say very simply, very generically, we found seven victims. They were all found in the kitchen area around this one cooler. The other thing, and you brought this up yesterday, was the guns. Remember, the newspapers were reporting that it is believed that two guns were used in the commission of these crimes. And we know later that that wasn't the case. It was one gun, a 38 caliber. Again, I don't know if this was something that the investigators chose and strategized to withhold from the media and the public, or if it was just a reporter ran with an idea and they chose not to correct the narrative. Well, again, law enforcement, when they're talking to reporters, because you got to talk to reporters in this case, because the threat level that the community and the locals would feel. So you have to pick and choose your words carefully, because like you said, you don't want to give out too much information and have somebody come forward with wrongful confession or somebody sending in a tip um, that is sending you on a wild goose chase because they, they got this information from a report. And then we have a crime scene detail that was withheld. There was a bullet that had been fired into one of the smoke hoods. So this would be above the cookers or the fryers. We don't know if this was intentionally done by the perpetrator or, you know, to try to fire a shot in the air to gain control of the people. You have seven people that you have to control and corral. Or if it was happenstance that there was a struggle and for whatever reason the gun goes off or the perpetrator is just simply unable to hit their mark. But there was a bullet that was fired into one of the smokeheads. So that hit something, either the smokehead or something above one of the cookers. Another item was the money situation. Now, we've seen this with Las Cruces, Bull, and several other cases. It's very common that the money situation is part of the holdback information. What we have in the Brown's chicken case is we have police informing the media the registers were empty. We have two cash registers. Both were found empty. The safe had been opened and money taken from the safe. The only money that they recovered from the Brown's Chicken restaurant was $1,000. The $1,000 that remained was not because the perpetrators failed to find this money. They, they just couldn't gain access to it. So it was on one of those timers. So this safe had several different compartments, a compartment where you can place things, mainly cash, but it also had a compartment that was locked down via timer. And you could access money by typing in a code and it would release a small amount of money. Like you could request 21s or 520s. I don't know what denominations were allowed for, but basically you could not access that money without going past this timer. So that $1,000 remained in this compartment. Now, I don't believe that they released the exact amount of money that had been taken. Now, that could be 
considered holdback information, the exact amount. But also I found in many cases, and I, and I know you've found this too, Captain, I think that oftentimes they are not, law enforcement is not incredibly precise on the exact amount of money that was taken. Yeah, I'm sure if they brought in like a financial forensic investigator, they could come up with the amount to the penny based on sales and receipts. But if that is not clear, at the end of the day, law enforcement just knows that there was some money taken. And does it really affect the investigation if it was $5,000 taken or $6,000 taken? Right. It, it could affect your investigation if it's a very, you know, not such a round number, right? If, if, if one individual knew that exactly $2,011 was stolen right. that night, then that becomes of particular interest. But you're exactly right. You'd have to bring in somebody to figure out and decipher exactly how much money was missing. And the problem then becomes here in this situation, unfortunately, everybody that was working that shift that night became a victim. They were killed. Right. And on top of that, the two owner operators were killed too. So you don't have a lot of great leads on getting you to that exact amount. So therefore it wouldn't actually be holdback information, but what we do have here is the details of that safe and the registers. They chose to release that information to the media and to the public. Well, again, law enforcement could talk to possibly a manager or assistant manager or other employees to just go, Hey, what's the average sale look like day to day? And what does one look like on a Friday and to get just a ballpark figure on what possibly could have been taken. Now here is a big, a very big piece of holdback information. The detectives were able to figure out a couple things that went down that night. And this is key for so many reasons. First of all, there was an actual sale that took place after the store had closed. So at 9.08 p.m., one of the registers recorded a sale for a meal. This was a chicken, coleslaw, and fries meal, which was, I believe, maybe the most popular combo meal that they sold at the time. We have the dollar amount that is rang in. So what happened was they were able to determine that the register had actually been closed down for the night. Remember the doors, the main entrances and exits found in the lock position when police arrived and then found the bodies. And most of those you have to lock from the inside. You can't just lock them from the outside unless you had a key, obviously. So registers closed and doors locked. Those are going to be key indicators to investigators that the restaurant was successfully closed on time at 9 p.m. For whatever reason, even after the registers were closed, we now have a sale of this meal at 9.08 p.m. after the store was supposed to be closed. Now, they also found in one of the trash receptacles a receipt for this meal. And in that trash receptacle, they also found remaining portions of this meal. In particular, they found chicken. Mm. This sounds like it would be a, a complete mess 
but there was some pretty neat and tidy things to this crime scene that really helped investigators. One, knowing that the registers had been successfully closed. Two, this meal or what remained of this meal and the receipt that they recovered from the trash receptacle, the other trash receptacles had been cleaned out. So that part of the closing duties had been done, had been completed. Right. You have this piece of information where you are sitting here going, okay, well, let's try to piece together what we think may have happened. We think that the perpetrator or perpetrators may have gained access to the store somehow after they closed or remained in the store unseen to other customers when the store closed. And for whatever reason, an employee or somebody allowed this late order to be rang in food prepared and served after the restaurant had actually closed. The thing is, there's a chance, there's a strong chance that that meal and that receipt have everything to do with your investigation. Yeah. You could get a fingerprint off that or obviously later on DNA evidence from the, from the actual food. So police were working on a couple of theories. They had a couple of working theories here. They weren't silent about this to the media. The one that they were most vocal about was they had said that we believe this is a robbery gone wrong, an armed robbery that went wrong. And what they surmised could have happened was that perp or perpetrators take the money after corralling and controlling the employees and the owners, and then become frustrated when they can't gain access to that last $1,000 and either a struggle takes place or someone is taken out. One of the workers, which would be a witness was taken out and now you have witnesses and then they take out the other witnesses. That was their general theory that we couldn't gain access to the $1,000. Now we're flipping out and a problem breaks out and this thing just got really bad, really quick. Maybe they showed up never intending to kill anybody, just wanted to clean the place out and were frustrated when they couldn't do so. And like you said, you have seven victims. So we have seven eyewitnesses to this robbery. That might not be that big of a deal to the perpetrators, but once something happens and one of the victims now becomes a murder victim, now you have another six eyewitnesses that they felt like they had to dispose of. Now, one theory that you cannot dismiss, and you touched on this yesterday, Captain, and this is something that I find to be fascinating. You also could have the situation where this was personal. Maybe somebody wanted revenge. And like you said, maybe they thought, you know what? Let's take the money anyway. We're here anyway. Let's clean this place out or let's clean out this place and make it look like the motive was something else right? to jack up the investigation. Now, remember this whole idea, money or something personal would be very similar to what we spoke about when we discussed the Lane Bryant shooting. That's in Tinley Park in another suburb of Chicago. This was a mass murder and armed robbery at a Lane Bryant outlet in Brookside Marketplace in Tinley Park that occurred in February of 2008. And in that case, sadly, we end up with five dead, one injured, who the killer attempted to execute. 
The gunman was later described as a black man with thick cornrowed hair and a receding hairline and a, a single braid that came down the front of his face or near his cheek. And that case was always believed to be a robbery gone awry. Police are on record saying, we believe this was a robbery gone awry, that uh, one of the hostages taken called 911, the gunman freaks out and, and starts shooting people. Armchair detectives and people that we spoke with were quick to point out, hey, there's all these little weird things with inside this case to consider. Could, is it possible that there was a hit involved or was it possible that this was not a robbery gone awry, as the police said, and that this person goes into the Lane Bryant with the purpose of killing one or more of these people, but kills all of them or attempts to do so to cover up who the actual target was. Well, and think about this. If you're law enforcement, if you just have, if somebody breaks into somebody's house and kills them and, and takes nothing or, or kills somebody in their car, you start with the inner circle and you start working out. If you believe that the crime is not targeted in this case, then you're looking for a, almost an infinite amount of suspects. And it's not crazy that these things actually happen or that people would suspect this in any of these cases. You know, I was reviewing a case just the other day where a woman hired two men to kill her husband. He was killed inside their home. And of course, she tells them, make sure you ransack the place before you leave. There's been a string of burglaries here in our neighborhood, it will look like he stumbled upon this break-in and he was attacked and killed. Not that it was something personal where a hired hit. Right. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. Now that Lane Bryant case was our episodes, true crime garage episodes, 200 and 201. That case is, is one of the cases that has intrigued me for years since back in 2008. It's a very fascinating case and one that I think we both believe is very solvable, but for whatever reason, it just hasn't been. It's yet. rumored that they have DNA in that case. So maybe we get something that, that, mm -hmm. that breaks here this year or 2023, the year of got him. Yeah. Let's make it happen. Let's, let's, let's cuff these people and bring them in. Now, we do have suspects and we had suspects early on in this case. So this is actually within hours of the case breaking. So there was a man that was held for questioning. This was a 23 year old man. He was a former employee of this particular Brown's chicken restaurant. This man was let go. He was fired from his job, what was stated was that he vowed to seek revenge. And actually, I, I have a portion from one of the newspapers here that say police raided the house of a 23-year-old former employee and arrested the man at gunpoint on Saturday afternoon. Remember, they discovered the bodies at 2.30 a.m. Saturday morning. This man was arrested Saturday afternoon. This after police learned that the man had been fired from the restaurant earlier and had vowed vengeance. So police have a motive. They hold this guy. They keep him for questioning. They actually went to his house. They searched this man's house and they were moved. We have the media. This was a media frenzy. 
when the case broke. Media, they're watching this man's house as it's being searched. They see police leaving this man's house with two bags, two big bags that they brought out of this guy's house. One of the officers is asked, hey, do, you know, did do you got the guy? Do you got the guy that did this? Is that, what is this? What are you removing from his home? What did you guys find? And he simply says, this is evidence, and I'll say nothing more than that. Are you sick of dealing with psoriasis and an itchy scalp? Sick of scratching your head trying to figure out how to fix it? Check out Ocean Soothe, a natural solution that relieves psoriasis and problematic skin and scalp conditions. It's sourced in Australia and manufactured in the USA. Ocean Soothe products deliver relief to the areas you need it most. They offer head-to-toe solutions so you don't need to put together a whole cocktail of products to treat your skin. The Ocean Soothe gel and lotions are recognized by the National Psoriasis Foundation to relieve psoriasis and can be used across your whole body. They're naturally made so you shouldn't experience any side effect. And they're odorless, so you can get relief without the stink. For optimal psoriasis relief, start with Ocean Soothe gel during the day, followed by Ocean Soothe lotion at night. And if you want on-the-go relief for dandruff, or dry, itchy scalp, the Ocean Soothe Scalp Serum is all you need. It has been a game changer for me. The winter comes, my scalp becomes a problem, but no more. And I love the fact that Ocean Soothe products, they have head-to-toe solutions, so really, they're the only product that I need. I absolutely love them. I think you're going to love them too. Abundant Natural Health Ocean Soothe products are available at CVS Health Hub stores, head over and shop today. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer 
or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we are back. Thank you for joining us here in the garage. Cheers to you all and cheers to you the crispiest of the colonelist. Cheers to everybody out there. He's back. I never left, but uh, mm. cheers to you, Captain. Thanks for returning. Uh, this guy, though, he would not be their only suspect in this case because what we have here, Captain, is they are able to hold this man for two days for approximately 48 hours, and then they released him. They sent him along his way, even though the officer says this is evidence. And that's all I'll say about that. The thing is, 
they may have had a motive or could put a motive on this guy for why he would be the perpetrator of the crime. They actually had zero evidence connecting him to the murders. They found nothing actually in his house that connected him to the murders. And yes, he did vocally tell at least one other person that he was going to get vengeance or some kind of revenge. It's not clear. It's Mm -hmm. what he stated, you know, if he said he was going to kill the owner or, kill the person that fired him or, you know, egg the place. We don't know what type of revenge he was seeking because that portion is not reported and probably rightfully so, because as it turns out, this guy doesn't look so good after you've talked to him for two days. Yeah. I used to get in trouble for this all the time. And I blame Frank Rizzo R I Z Z O because there was that famous jerky boy sketch and he would say, my wife is sick. My kids are sick. You, you want to talk about coupon? I'll bomb this place. And I used to make that threat a lot when I was younger in my, my dumber days. Now, 10 days after the murders, we get additional potential suspects. We get three people that police brought into the station for questioning. This is because, well, and face it, they didn't have to look very hard for these, these persons. So these individuals were suspects in another case that took place within a week or so of the Brown's chicken massacre. These suspects had committed some armed robberies and they were all robberies that were committed in suburbs surrounding Chicago. And the reason why the police were really interested in these three guys is that in all cases, the employees were rounded up and forced into the coolers of those restaurants and businesses. Yeah, it makes sense. So it, it seems like something they've done before, but then this one maybe got out of hand, and that's why we have murdered victims now. I'm uncertain, Captain, of how long it took for investigators to determine if, if and when and how these guys are just robbers and not actual murderers. Right. But... At some point, these guys go from looking really good for this to not looking good for it at all. What I do want to point out here, too, and this is something you can learn from the actions of an actual investigation, is what have the police figured out and what have they not figured out about the crime scene and about the perpetrators? Well, here, when you see one individual being arrested in question for two days, and then later, a week later or so, you find three persons being arrested, it looks to me like police are uncertain or they have evidence that's telling them don't lock into an idea of how many people committed this crime. Don't lock in on if it's one guy, two guys, or three or four people that you are looking for in the Brown's chicken case. But also if these guys end up not being suspects, that's fine. But think about the information that you're probably going to learn during the questioning of that. Well, how would this go down? And and these guys essentially are somewhat of experts when it comes to armed robbery. By the one year anniversary ex- of oh this God. massacre, sadly, the case was still unsolved. And police were, they had assembled a task force very early in this investigation, which consisted of 84 detectives and support staff from 10 law enforcement agencies, including the state police, the Chicago police department, 
and the FBI. This task force, Captain, would include more than 100 individuals from 21 law enforcement agencies. The task force ultimately, within that first year, received more than 3,000 tips. We said this was going to be a large, complicated investigation, and you can see by the 3,000 tips and then them following up on more than 1,000 leads how complicated this case was. Police spent more than 400 hours processing the actual crime scene and collected more than 240 pieces of evidence at the scene and lifted 200 latent fingerprints. Sadly, after 365 days, while we had some suspects that may have looked good briefly, we don't end up with any arrest. There's no court date set for anybody for a murder trial here after that time period. Which is tough on the victims' families. It's tough on law enforcement. It's also tough on the community because this is a tragic situation and we just don't have any answers. After 365 days, the task force dwindled in numbers. Of course, they they send these officers and investigators on to cases, other cases that they acquire throughout that time period. So did the tips. The tips dwindled as well. Now, After one year, there was a $107,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and a conviction here in the Browns case. Police used the one-year anniversary to remind the public they believed that the case was simply just one phone call away from being solved. Someone out there knows who the killer is and hasn't come forward. They go on to say that we're looking for someone who could be an accessory to the trigger man or someone that the killer or killers have talked to about what they have done. And they were reminding the public, Hey, we want that person to contact us. Well, like the Colonel was saying, we we have this task force and they're together for a whole year. And yes, we don't have a rest yet. And the Browns chicken massacre, but this task force was successful because as they're questioning individuals and, and gathering information in this case, they were able to actually make arrest of 10 to 12 individuals in other cases. Some other statements that were released to, by the police on the one year anniversary that I like here, captain, they went on to say, some of the officers said this offender has caused a lot of human suffering. The task force has compiled thousands of pages of reports and information that has been shared with police agencies throughout the country. The killers eventually will slip up. This case is going to be solved. We have some unfortunate little details in this case. Yeah, there's always these sad little details that you find, Captain, in these cases where you're like, this victim could have been avoided. It it may not... This person didn't have to be there that night, or this person was scheduled to be there at the last minute. So yeah, like an unfortunate change of events. Exactly. So we have the restaurant owners themselves. They had actually just bought this store months earlier, and it was actually the first restaurant that the married couple had ever owned. It was a career change for the couple. Right. Then we have the cook. Maldonado, he had just started working there three weeks prior to the massacre. The two teenagers 
were just part-time employees. And, you know, one thing that's sad here in that case, you go back to 1993, we had 2 million Americans, 18 and younger, that made up two thirds of America's fast food workforce at the time, where most of them were making the federal minimum wage of just $4 and 25 cents an hour. And then we have one of the individuals that was working that night, Rick Salas, who was actually filling in for another employee that night after having traded shifts with a fellow employee so that one of them or both of them could attend events that they wanted to go to on uh, for Rick a different night and for this employee that particular night. Well, and that's what we talk about with the when you have a victim there's multiple victims, family members, coworkers, the community. But now in this situation, you have these guys that they traded shifts with each other, and and that guy has to live with that for the rest of his life. Where, he, you know, that'd be that'd be difficult for me if if one of my buddies took on my shift and something bad happened to him. Uh, that'd be very difficult. There's always a lot of survivor's guilt in these type of cases and circumstances. You touched on something earlier, Captain, that will end up being the crux of this case and the investigation. And remember, police pointed out in interviews shortly after the homicides took place that, you know, we have blood evidence here in this case, and we've really been working significantly with a lot of blood evidence and spatter and positional things and directional things involving blood spatter that tell us certain aspects about a crime and how things went down at a scene. And we believe that soon one day that's going to lead to more DNA technology that can be used in these types of investigations. That was all very foretelling in a way, because what we have here is after years of the case not being solved, There's a lot of pressure being put on the police department, a lot of criticism being thrown their way by the media and by the public because they wanted this thing solved. And they started to think that it would never be solved. Well, meanwhile, behind the scenes, police were still working with the idea of, hey, that big piece of holdback information that we had about the receipt, about the meal being sold after the store closed and the chicken and the items that were found in that trash receptacle, while we couldn't pull any fingerprints from it in 1993, we better save all this stuff because we think one day we might be able to use these items and pull evidence, particularly DNA from them, that at some point, hopefully we can connect it to an actual suspect. And then we know who was there that night. All the while, I believe it was about five years They kept testing these items that they found in that trash receptacle. Eventually, after about five years, they were able to pull DNA from one of those pieces of chicken. They're not working with genealogy detective work back then, so we can't just take this and then work it for six months to 18 months and hopefully figure out family tree that may lead us to the perpetrator. But if we get the right guy or girl or whomever, we at least have DNA now that we can start comparing it to suspects. 
what happens is they actually end up with several confessions in this case. I don't know the total number of confessions that they ended up with, but even after the five-year mark, once they have this DNA, we have confessions from a boyfriend and girlfriend that say that they were involved. We have confessions from two friends uh, not related to the boyfriend and girlfriend that admitted to being involved and had done the killings. However, Captain, what we end up with is in March of 2002, police are going back through and they are going to kind of toss everything out except for the DNA evidence and look at this case with new fresh eyes, start anew. And one thing they had always been really working in this case, and it's obvious by the actions of the investigation Remember, we had said that 23-year-old former employee was brought in within hours of the murders and questioned and held for two days, his home searched. They were always locked in on this idea that the probability of it being a current employee or former employee they thought was rather high. So when they start investigating this case anew in 2002, one of the first things they were doing was they were contacting all of the former employees and associates of known associates of the former employees. Well, in March of 2002, they get an individual named Ann Lockett on the phone. And Ann Lockett is somebody that they had interviewed a couple of times. But in March of 2002, she has a very different story to tell them than what she's told them in the past. Mm-hmm. And this time she's telling them, I know exactly who did it because the two individuals told me that they did it. Dun, dun, dun. So now we have to introduce James Dagorski and Juan Luna. The way that this story works here, Captain, is that Dagorski and Luna told Lockett that they had committed the crimes. Here's a little bit of a problem for investigators. This is not the first person to tell them that they had committed the crimes, not, not Luna and Degorski, right? But remember they have the other confessions and they've had other people along the way that have told them, Hey, I think I know who did it, but we have all that holdback information. So now we can ask her, well, what are the details that they gave you? And do those match anything that maybe somebody in the public wouldn't know? Yes. And the reason why I cited those two specific confessions, the boyfriend and the girlfriend pair, and then you also have the two friends, I cited those because police had a hard time moving on from both of those because they both nailed a lot of the holdback information. In fact, in one of those cases, the detectives were screaming and shouting, hey, we got to arrest these guys and take them to court. And the prosecutor kept reminding them, okay, now... Keep in mind, guys, we have the DNA. They can say all day and night that they did this and that the um, they know intimate details of the murders or the crimes, but their DNA does not match that that is found on the chicken. So the prosecutor did not allow for the arrest in either occasion. Well, and one of the problems, too, with the case not being solved right away is that hold back information starts leaking out in a small town. I mean, you, you said it was... Uh, a village, basically less than 50,000 people. There's information that's probably getting leaked out. And we've seen that in other investigations as well. It just happens. Unfortunately, it's unfortunate, but it, it just happens. Now, in this case, one piece 
that nobody had gotten right about the holdback information was that, and, and this is very sad and disturbing to say all at the same time, so I apologize for having to say this, but one piece of holdback information was that one of the victims vomited as he was being shot or 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 just before he was shot. Right. And these other confessions that they had, that detail was missing from those confessions. When they speak with Ann Lockett, and then they start talking to Luna and Dagorski, that detail is present in those stories, thus separating them immediately from anybody else that they've ever spoken to. And then they say to Juan Luna, they're, they're interviewing him at his home. I believe it might've been right in front of his home. Take this swab and just rub it on the inside of your mouth here. When we put it in this tube, no big deal. We're asking everybody to do this. We're asking anybody that we talk to, to do it. And he willingly agrees and he swabs the inside of his cheek. And it takes some time, of course, but after they check that swab and then compare it to the DNA found on the chicken, it's a match. So now we have a DNA match putting Juan Luna at the scene. Later, he gives a confession that puts James Degorski there with him. They are both the right. gunmen in this confession. We have Ann Lockett who says that Juan Luna did it and James Degorski did it. And they told me the detail about the victim vomiting. And so all these things are matching up. Eventually, James Degorski gives a confession as well. The short of it here, Captain, is that we end up with two individuals as being present there, two individuals involved and responsible for the murder of seven individuals, and they end up being tried and tried separately. Now, while this case took place, the murders took place in 1993, the arrests do not occur until May of 2002. This is after they get the DNA sample back. Right, almost 10 years. And then we don't have trials that start until one trial started in 2007 and the other started in 2009. And these took so long to get to court because both of these trials were rather complicated. You had, yes, the DNA with Juan Luna, but just because he ate a piece of chicken and left it at this restaurant does not necessarily mean that he's the killer. It just means he was the last customer of that day. He was there and he was somebody that was never willing for all these years to admit that he was there. So right. that makes him much more suspicious than anybody else. Of course, you end up getting a confession out of him. Well, and he also confessed to Anne. So correct. And then after you arrest his partner in crime, James Degorski, you get a confession out of him as well. The problem with Degorski is you actually end up with zero physical evidence putting him at the crime scene. You're arresting him based off of what Juan Luna is saying and what Ann Lockett is saying. Yes, Degorski eventually confesses. And I keep circling around on this because what ended up being a problem at both trials was that it was quickly pointed out that, yeah, these two guys confessed, but so did other people. Right. And other people confessed because of the pressure that was put on them by the police, by the detectives. They may have been a little overly aggressive in their pursuit of suspects that were not correct. But like you said, the difference between those confessions and these confessions are little details. 
and that's good thing. So when everybody's screaming at the top of their lungs that law enforcement needs to release more information, well, this is one of the reasons why it's so important that they keep certain details back because if they would have said that one of the victims threw up, then that's that one little detail that then anybody would have known. Both Luna and Degorski, while tried separately, they were both found guilty on all seven counts of murder. In both cases, we have the state of Illinois unsuccessfully sought the death penalty against Degorski and Luna, and they were both sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, keep in mind, those trials were 2007, 2009. The state of Illinois abolished the death penalty in 2011. At the time, there were 15 inmates of the state still on death row. The then governor, Pat Quinn, commuted those sentences to life sentences. But if you look up this case now, you're going to see that James Degorski, he's been fighting for a new trial and trying to bring new evidence. And he's He's actually won and 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 got to higher courts to actually hear this information. But the last thing I read on it was that he got to the higher courts, but then the courts um, listened to the argument, but then dismissed. They dismissed his notion to get a new trial. Yeah, again, the complications were the confessions themselves because they did both give different versions a few different versions of what went down there that night. It could just be that they're trying to put more blame on the other perpetrator and put less blame on themselves. Degorski ended up being compensated by the state to the tune of $451,000. This was in 2014 when a jury awarded him that money for punitive damages. This was because he was beaten severely by a sheriff's deputy in Cook County Jail in May of 2002. This was days after his arrest for these seven murders. Yeah, which would make you question the validity of a confession under oath because he's basically being physically tortured by the police. And both Luna and Degorski have recanted all of their confessions And they are also saying that they were fed information from the police during the interrogation or questioning process. Their lawyers have pointed out that Ann Lockett was awarded money, $107,000 roughly. Actually, her and another woman split the money because they provided information about Degorski and Luna to the police. To me, Captain, I, I see their arguments and I understand them. And I think that there is some level of merit there that they have in an argument. And of course, look, that's why I am. That's why in some cases I am fond of our system because they do have appeals where they can express those concerns and can make those arguments. However, from where I sit, both of these guys look incredibly guilty. I do want to make sure that we give a big shout out to the Chicago Tribune who did an absolute gangbusters job, absolutely gangbusters work on covering this case over the many, many years that it took to see this thing through. 
want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage for another week onward and upward inching our way towards episode 1000 it'll be here before you know it colonel but do we have any recommended reading this week we are recommending a lovely girl the tragedy of olga duncan and the trial of one of california's most notorious killers by deborah larkin this is the incredible story of a murder that ended with the last woman to ever be executed in california a Lovely Girl by Deborah Larkin follows a murder so twisted it seems ripped from a Greek tragedy. The mystery begins on a quiet November night in Santa Barbara when a pregnant nurse named Olga Duncan disappeared from her apartment. Check out A Lovely Girl, The Tragedy of Olga Duncan and the Trial of One of California's Most Notorious Killers by Deborah Larkin. You can find that great title and many more wonderful recommendations on our recommended page at truecrimegarage.com. Yeah, you wanted the best and you got the best. The Colonel is the GOAT. I've said it before and I'll say it again. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.